0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Mooncat is Ocho. Hello. This week we are going back to 1981/2, and we're going to be discussing something which it's an oddity, isn't it? Because this is something which tends to get overlooked by and large when the subject matter is being discussed, and yet the complete works are available on
1: dvd when we did the lwt story for jaffa cakes what lwt story we just did the opening weekend and a couple of weeks after that we talked about tidy narratives how the same talking heads turn up again and again the same clips turn up again and again and one person's theory which might be subject to bias then becomes the official story. The official story of the goodies is they were at the BBC for 10 years, they went to LWT, they were old, they were past it, they did a bad series and they never did any more goodies again, the end. I dispute this. It's a bit like the whole and Wise thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. BBC, brilliant, went to Thames, old men, didn't do good stuff. I dispute that and even if their Thames stuff has problems, I don't think it was necessarily anything innate. To them, it's a bit of a case of, well, maybe the format needs refreshing, but it is an ongoing thing of somebody gets famous and then they move to another company and problems arise.
0: Now, it's something that we haven't touched on too many times in the sitcom club because it's not something which tends to happen, by and large, with sitcoms. It's usually something that happens with entertainers themselves. and. I suspect that most instances tend to fall into that narrative. If an entertainer has been on one channel and then moves to another one, there is just no way that the newspapers, for example, are going to say that they are as good, if not better, in their new set of surroundings. I mean, Bruce First Life, for example. Regardless of the faults of Big Night, there was never really this serious prospect of being given a fair hearing by the press because that wasn't the narrative. The narrative is, Brucey's moved, he's got all this glitzy new show, he's got his new cash and what have you, and, of course, yeah, that's just how the storyline goes.
1: Brucey's a bit of an exception to the rule because he changed companies and did something quite, quite different from what he was doing before. And then, of course play your cards right, he eventually recovered from that. I'm almost kind of more thinking of, going even further back, Buster Keaton moves to MGM, the Marx Brothers move to MGM, our gang moves to MGM, Laurel and Hardy move to Fox, and in some of those cases, certainly our gang, lesser extent Laurel and Hardy, but even the... It's, right, okay, come here and do exactly what you were doing at the other place, but under our rules. So you're going to come here. You're not going to do anything new or original, but we're also going to change your working atmosphere and expect you to work around that. You have less freedom. Why aren't you doing as good a work as before? I think that happened with Morkman and Wise. They go to Thames and it's just like, do what you did at the BBC. And it's an interesting thing. A couple of those later series for the BBC, there's a couple of bits where the Markham Wise show turns into a sitcom. And it would have been interesting if they'd come to Thames and said, we're not doing a variety show, we're going to do a half-hour sitcom.
0: Well, funnily enough, at the time of their transfer, Philip Jones was misquoted in the press as having said that the Thames and Wise shows will be as different as possible from the BBC ones. And later one had to clarify this and say, actually, he meant the precise opposite. There are occasions, such as Dick Emery, for example, doing his shows for Thames at the end of the 1970s, and doing a different type of show to that which he'd been doing at the BBC, where it was more a sort of overall variety show, and he was doing a lot more of his singing, for example, rather than just these straightforward sketch comedy. On the topic of Mark and Wise, it's such an oddity. It's mentioned by Graham McCann in his biography that Thames bending over backwards to keep things exactly as they had always been at the BBC actually caused him problems, because Thames allotted the same amount of preparation and rehearsal time for their shows as they'd had at the BBC. But of course, the shows at Thames were 20 minutes shorter than the ones that they'd been doing at the BBC. So they actually had more time to pull apart ideas and eventually decided that they didn't like them. And that in some ways sort of worked
1: against them. It's not really something to talk about right now too much, but Yes, that's another thing to think about. It's not just a case of, this act moves to ITV. Where in ITV are they moving to? More wise at LWT. Might have been a better fit than Thames. Now, on the surface, the goodies moving to any ITV company, LWT would seem to be the perfect choice. Because they have a little bit more time. That's why it was so good for Stanley Baxter to be there. Because the studios are... Not quite standing idle for five days, but there seems to be a bit more free time to work things out. And yet, shall I outline my problem with this series? Not all of the film sequences are less good, but the biggest problem seems to be in the filmed bits. And the bits where my interest really perked up was just the bits where they're fooling around in the studio. Which requires, I think, less thinking about the editing and probably less budget. There's one bit in Change of Life where they just pull their shirts up and they're just sticking their bellies out. <laughs> and I like that. Yes. They're just being a bunch of funny uncles. And that really works for me. And I've liked the previous East. I mean, the movies is wonderful. That film sequence where they do the whole Buster Keaton falling down storefront thing, but they're doing it with three people. That's <laughs> way more dangerous, I think. <laughs>
0: Well, let's just put this quickly into context for anybody who's not too familiar with the goodies shows.
1: Okay, is the goodies a sitcom? Because I have previously tried to prevent the goodies being on Sitcom Club because I've said it's not a sitcom.
0: In the courts, and you ran up one hell of a legal bill. I would say yes, it is because, as wild and free-form as it is, it still has a narrative. So I'm going to say it's a sitcom. It's not a variety show. It's not a sketch show because... I would have
1: said it was a sketch show, but every sketch is half an hour long.
0: In some ways, I'm going to actually give you some weaponry for your arsenal to argue against me. But you could say that if The Goodies is a sitcom, so is Series 4 Monty Python. Because you've got some episodes in there which... For example, the Department Store episode, I think it's episode like 2. Well, the run. Yeah. Basically one long story told over a sequence of little sketches, but they're all related, they've got narrative going through them.
1: Well, there was that plan, wasn't there, for Series 4 of Python to become Python Playhouse and be a bit closer to Ripping Yarns, I think. I don't have my Ripping Yarns DVD with me. It's 5,000 miles away. The Goodies is a borderline case, and the reason I kept, making this spurious argument that the goodies isn't a sitcom is it's a gag delivery system and you know me and gag delivery systems if i can't pick apart interpersonal relationships i get a bit tongue-tied but the nice thing we have about this is that this is a big change and it has a certain reputation and the reputation is not entirely deserved so there's plenty for us to talk about and if there isn't plenty for us to talk about we'll sing some songs at the end
0: okay so timber taylor bill Audie, graham garden all Ex-Cambridge Footlights, and been on television in the late 1960s in shows like Broaden Your Mind and the Last a 1948 show. Bill Audie and Graham Garden are frequent writing partners in the late 1960s. They wrote several episodes of Doctor in the House for LWT, and in 1970 the goodies begins on BBC television and continues right up until 1980. Straight away, I'm going to point something out here, which I think. Favored them at the BBC and didn't work for them quite as well at ITV and that is having two channels because that meant that over the course of their ten years and particularly as the BBC often didn't quite know how to classify the goodies because it was perceived by some as a children's show and the goodies themselves. Disagreed with this, and you can see instances later on in the BBC shows where they get a little bit more gritty and start to discuss topics that you wouldn't normally have discussed on a children's show. That's an ongoing thing for 10 years, but at least you've got the option of having the shows go out at, say, 10 past eight or nine o'clock on BBC Two, and then you could have repeats on BBC One earlier in the evening. And if the odd little edit has to be made here and there, so be it. Whereas on ITV, one channel, and it's one channel. It's got one time slot, and there you are. But we'll discuss that in just a moment. As the goodies themselves related in the Return of the Goodies, BBC2 documentary from 2005, which I think is all on YouTube in bits and pieces, John Howard Davis, 10 years before doing the same to Benny Hill at Thames, he explains to the goodies that for reasons of expenditure, He wants to put the goodies on hold, principally because they were about to start making The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy television adaptation. And they weren't sure just how expensive that was going to be. So the goodies opted to take an offer from London Weekend Television and moved accordingly.
1: I've heard a very slightly different story. I believe it was an interview in Cult TV magazine, very short-lived, circa 1998. Back at that time when being into old TV was actually kind of cool. Maybe the magazine came out just after the Time Warp Television era of Bravo. But do you remember that point? Yeah. And the thing they said in that interview, if it's the one I remember, was they'd been told, right, we're doing this thing, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. It's going to be very expensive. We can't really afford to make a series of that and a series of the goodies. If that gets a second series, (laughs) we'll probably won't recommission you. But if it doesn't get a second series, you can come make another series for us. And they were saying, well, what the hell kind of a choice is that? I think also a couple of them were going through divorces. So they were looking for more money anyway. That's not telling tales out of school because that's in an interview. Maybe it was the one who wasn't going through a divorce saying things he shouldn't. But, oh, well, it's in black and white too late.
0: No, you're quite right. That is also referenced in ton of the Goodies as well. That's shabby treatment, isn't <laughs> it? It is shabby treatment. And, yes, I understand that. I think that they did say that partly they didn't want the goodies to be reliant on the failure of another show, but also, as Grimgarden put it, this was an offer that they could refuse. They weren't getting really a lot of love from the BBC by having this suggestion made to them. So when the LWT offer for a free year exclusive contract came along, it was just right. Now, the complete LWT goodies is available from Network DVD, It's got included within the DVD packaging. I know sometimes like extras like booklets go out of print and they're not always available. I've just checked the network website today and this is still listed as being part of the package when you buy the goodies at LWT. It's a superb little booklet written by Andrew Pixley and this has got absolutely everything that you would want to know about the goodies at LWT. It's got recording dates, it's got Details about the music used in the show, whether it was something that was specifically written or if it's a library track. It's got details of the ratings and the repeat runs and all the context about the shows. So, yeah, that booklet is worth the price of the DVD alone, to be honest. But also, there's a ton of extras on the two disc set. So, there's lots of extra bits and pieces. And there was also footage of, let me just check this. Yeah, Tim Brooke Taylor on the 1st of December 1981 judging a turkey competition. As the booklet explains, Much of the filming for The Goodies took place in the spring of 1981, so way, way ahead of its transmission, because the first edition of The Goodies that went out on ITV was just after Christmas in 1981, and that's Snow White 2, as it's called. And then the full series began in January 82.
1: Before we get to Snow White 2, can we mention the weird gun-jumping of their ITV debut because the first time the goodies were seen on ITV was in outtakes on It'll Be Alright on the Night 3. And what makes it worse, as you showed me a trailer for Christmas 1981, and it did contain a bit saying, and the goodies will be on for a Christmas special. It wasn't even our first sight of the goodies in that Christmas trailer. They advertised It'll Be Alright on the Night with an outtake from the holidays episode. <laughs> and they advertised a Christmas special with a scene from A Change of Life, which wasn't the Christmas special. So you almost get the feeling that, what? are you guys not really pleased to have us? I mean, I had a look at the TV Times for Christmas 1981. There are a couple of columns in the back about the goodies. I don't think it's even a full page. But there's really nothing to say, hey, hey, come and look here. The goodies are now with us. Maybe there was when the weekly series started, but I don't have any TV Timeses for that date.
0: It mentions in the booklet that they did have a feature in the TV Times for the first regular show in January 82. I think you're right, in all honesty. I think it doesn't come across as publicised in the same way as Bruce Versailles from Walkerman Wise and so on. There's not quite the same level of, hey, look at us, look at our latest acquisition. Or, for example, Mike Yarwood later in 1982 as well. So, okay, first of all, Snow White 2, 27th of December, 1981. The only one of the seven LWT shows which is all on film. I I am in agreement with you when you say that you sort of prefer the bits and pieces in the studio and what have you. And part of the reason that overall I enjoyed watching this DVD as a complete set, part of the reason for that is that I really like LWT and also Thames TV from this era. I'm talking about sort of, roughly speaking, sort of 78 through to 83, so around about that period of time. I really like just the overall style of the shows, quite often the appearance of them, and quite often also the music that's used within the programs. On Thames and LWT shows, you've got particular composers and so on who are associated with a lot of the variety shows. I did enjoy watching Bits and Pieces. Of each episode, partly for that reason. Snow White 2 is all on film, so I don't quite get that same sort of vibe with this.
1: Snow White 2 doesn't feel like proper goodies. I remember on Clive James, one of his shows, he was talking about some Eastern European comedian who was a big fan of Benny Hill and did this copy of Benny Hill's comedy, only it seemed to be slightly ruder, but he's doing the whole sped up thing. And this felt like a bunch of foreign comedians who are big fans of the goodies, trying to do the goodies. If that makes any sense?
0: Yes, yes, I know what you mean.
1: It had no build. Stuff just happens. It seems to start partway through, like it's parts three and four of a much longer episode. doesn't have any opening titles, does it? Yeah, it's just like, right, so um, Pantomime, Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, the goodies pretend to be three of the dwarves, and then they go to the castle, and they do a song and dance number, but then they get thrown out of the castle, and... After a while, it feels like it's much later in the show than it is. I mean, that whole men number, that feels like it should be just before the end. Do the big number and have a few closing gags, credits and out. And that's my main problem with Snow White 2. There's no build. I'm
0: really not too fussed about
1: having any kind of
0: streak cred when it comes to either sitcom or indeed anything else. I'm on record as saying that I laughed at some elements of an episode of The Right Way, for goodness sake. So I didn't have any credibility to begin with. However, I'm going to say something now which is going to reduce my ready plummeting stock a tad. And then I'm going to come up with something which is ripe for misquotation and probably will end up going on my tombstone. First of all, with the proviso that I'm not a huge fan of the BBC post-John Burt, and I'm certainly not a fan of ITV post-1993. Even with those two things said, there were times when I was watching Snow White 2 and thinking, how much did this cost? (laughs) To put that into a little bit of context, something you often hear said about Stanley Baxter, that he made his shows for LWT, for example, for the 1970s, and then along comes this chap called John Bart, And he's obsessed with his abacus. And, and his sock drawer. Yep. And he decides that Stanley Baxter's shows are too expensive. So Stanley Baxter ends up transferring to the BBC. Or back to the BBC, rather, because he'd been making shows for BBC before he was at LWT. And no sooner has he got there, than along comes John Bart in his new position. And so he's out for a second time. And Stanley Baxter did sort of turn up and do bits and pieces. Of course, Stanley Baxter is still active today doing shows on Radio 4 just recently. But as far as his big TV specials were concerned, mid-1980s, that's pretty much when they came to a conclusion. And that happens around about the time that television, by and large, starts to be more mindful of the pennies and trying to cut back on elaborate shows and so on. And I think overall, by and large, to the medium's detriment, However, having said all of that there are some times when I'm watching Stanley Baxter shows. Take for example something like the pastiche of the Terroring Inferno that's often cited as a great Stanley Baxter sketch LWT. When I'm watching things like that, I am in awe of the appearance of it and the set design and just the overall work and attention to detail and so on. It's not making it any funnier for me. It reminds me a little bit of what Hal Roach said about the colorization of Lauren Hardy's films. It's all very well and it all looks very pretty, but it doesn't make the films any funnier. Part of me was sort of thinking that with Snow White too, just as you said, some of the things that you enjoyed the most in the goodies were just little seemingly sort of ad-libbed bits in the studio, whereas this whole sort of musical bits towards the end, where you've got costume change after costume change after costume change and constant props and all sorts going on. I'm just sort of looking at this and I'm slightly taken aback by just how much expenditure they've gone to. And I'm thinking, personally, this doesn't give me the giggles. I don't know. I mean, I'm not going to be one of those people who says it isn't funny because that's subjective. So we've established that in the sitcom club. There's no such thing as something which is or isn't funny. It's up to you. It's it's personal taste. But I couldn't help but sort of think, yeah, this is very, very elaborate, but it's just not doing it for me.
1: There's a feeling of casting around for inspiration as well. What's funny? What's funny? Pantomimes, they're funny. And there is a thing that they're spoofing a spoof. They're pointing out the ridiculous elements of something that we all know is ridiculous anyway. And we don't get principal boys anymore, do you? And yet the thing is, is that you don't get much dame business from the goodies themselves. you got Tim doing his Lady Constance voice, but fairy godmothers aren't dames. And I have a bit of a similar problem with the first proper episode with the robot. There's not much build it's the edge of the cute robot. They they mention Twicky, don't they? And Metal Mickey. And he has history with Bill Oddy. Is
0: Yeah, I was going to say, is that an in-joke?
1: Fr- I don't think so, no. I think it's just a cultural reference. I think it's just the edge of the cute robot. We've had Star Wars and K9, and now the goodies get a robot. Let's not talk about the robot one too much. Let's put that to one side. Because then we can talk about the football one. How did you feel about the football one?
0: Kudos to you for having twigged that the football one was going to provoke some sort of reaction from me.
1: Oh, because you like the football, don't you?
0: I do follow the ball. This is true. Okay, football crazy. Second episode. By and large, just passed me by. The, the silly nonsense with the ballet and what have you. It just went on and on and on. And that slightly depressing moment when you see the appearance of a guest star. I'm going to give an example, actually, of something like the Dick Emery show, at Thames, where he has Richard Todd appear in this sort of World War II spoof. When you get the appearance of a guest star and you think, this is going to go on for a while because this guest star clearly isn't going to be in the show for two seconds. They're going to be here for the duration. So as soon as you see Wayne Sleep, you think, this bit is going to go on for about 10 minutes. And my God, it does. As far as the actual premise of Football Crazy is concerned... I'd seen Football Crazy before and I wasn't particularly looking forward to seeing it again because I don't know if I've ever actually said this about any programme in the two years that we've been doing the podcast. I'm really not somebody who's easily offended. Okay, okay, snakes and ladders. Yes, I know, I get that. But that aside, the opening of Football Crazy I find really distasteful and I wasn't looking forward to seeing it again because I understand that The Goodies is not... The children show that it's made out to be all the time. And I understand that the goodies often discuss topics and spoof certain ideas and so on to, you know, get your mind thinking. And nothing wrong with that. But I just found the whole business about football hooliganism and death in general. I found that very, very out of place. I really, really do not like that opening sequence at all. And perhaps this is really, really unfair of me because I'm looking at this through the prism of the last 30 years, but this is from the beginning of 1982, and obviously, because it's premise of the episode, Football Hooliganism is a big thing at this time, and it's a big, big problem for the game, but I think that with the time that's passed since, looking at that after something like Heisel, I, I can't laugh at this, and... So, that that sort of colours my attitude towards it. I think if this had been a little bit more subtle, perhaps, I think that it could have made its point. But, like I say, for the most part, it's just silly nonsense. It's a business at the ballet. It goes on and on and on. But, yeah, the, the opening to that episode, I really, really do not like. So, there you go.
1: I liked the football one.
0: Oh, he said it, hasn't he? He's burned me up. He's, he's wheeled me in.
1: I agree, the beginning, it's not so much that it's distasteful, it falls between two stools. Remember I said that thing of casting around. What's funny? Pantomimes? Robots? At least with the football one, you get the feeling that they're bothered by it. They may be bringing their usual silly goodies humour to bear, and maybe it needs something with a bit more bite. But there is that little drop of contempt. They are laughing at something that they want to laugh at. This is a bad thing. And then, of course, it just becomes a more generic gag about football. Not just necessarily even in hooliganism, but just there's a few football gags. But it's like, well, at least they're making jokes about something. I agree. They start off on something that isn't quite black comedy and isn't quite slapstick. But there's a point of view there. And I quite like how Graham-centric it is. What was the lager advert he was parodying? Or not lager advert.
0: It's actually an advert for a non-alcoholic lager that was advertised by Laurie McMenemy in the Ah. late 1970s. And the basic shtick is that he stood there drinking his pint and he's saying, oh, you know, it's it's lovely drop this, and then you find out it's got no alcohol in it and so on. And I do like the little bits and pieces like that. I like like
1: the bit where they do the big match. Yes. With him playing all three things. I mean, because early on we have the real Fred Dynage.
0: The real Fred Dinish himself, the real Kenneth Wollstoneholm is in there. We've also got the real big match graphics, the correct (laughs) font and everything, and the proper Jeff Wayne music and so on. So got no problem with that.
1: No, there's bits that work in this, and I I quite like the Surreals and abuse were just slight oddities like Tim talking to himself on the television. And when something happens on the television, then it's now suddenly happened in real life. And Tim changes out of his Derby County outfit into his policeman's uniform immediately. And the whole thing of, like, twerp of the month and one of the twerps being a dog. It's not quite the best treatment this topic can get, but there's a bit of purpose to the parody... There's some nice gags. So by the time we get to the football sequence, which I remember the first time feeling the same way as you, which is this is going on and on and on. And when I rewatched it this time, it's like, well, by the time they've got to this point, they've actually got me in the mood for just silly gag after silly gag. I thought Winsleep was actually pretty funny. So I was ready for that extended gag. Now, you're saying about the taste issue. There are a few points in this where I think that, as you said before about being on two channels, are they a kids' show? Are they not? Just occasionally get the feeling that this is them getting ready for the 80s and the slightly more savage tone that's coming. I was always surprised, like uh, the, the line in the robot one about, I think I'll have your nipples off. It didn't seem very Saturday tea time to me, but somebody like the goodies are perfectly placed to put that there. And it, it was the feeling it's like they're beginning to go somewhere. Maybe they could take a turn into slightly nastier humor. Only slightly, but just occasionally you feel they They're beginning to adjust to the changing climate. We never find out what happens after this series.
0: Well, this is something which was of concern to themselves. It's mentioned again in Andrew Pixley's booklet in the DVD that ITV chose to schedule this series at 6.45 in the evening on Saturdays and halfway through the run amended it to 6.15 and the repeat run a couple of years later was largely going out at 5 o'clock on Sundays. So it never had a post-watershed time slot. And that was something which you could do on the BBC. You could run the shows at 9pm on BBC2 and run them again early on the evening on BBC1, perhaps following summer or whatever it may be. But I don't want to get ahead of ourselves too much by saying a great deal about the other episodes until we actually start discussing them. But this does seem to be a trait that's running through this series in that part of the reason why I felt uneasy with Football Crazy is because it's preceded by Robot and it's followed by Bigfoot. You've got silly nonsense, then you've got something satirical, then you've got silly nonsense, then we'll come on to change your life in a moment, then you've got holidays, which is entirely silly, and then you've got animals, which again is making moral points. So I don't really know where the hell I am with this series, because I don't know where I am from one
1: week to the next.
0: There's not too many shows, I think we've ever talked about on the podcast, that really fall into that category if there was a
1: series after this we might be able to identify something that's the thing are they trying something that they're then going to say no this is not what we're about or were they going to move into a new area was there going to be a goodies episode called nuclear war going back to that opening sequence the problem with that is that it's not distasteful in and of itself then don't find it funny but because it's black in the wrong setting that's when it becomes distasteful it's distasteful by virtue of context and the whole ballet hooliganism thing is a reused idea from the 1948 show.
0: Well, again, that's another reason why it sort of left me with a bad taste in the mouth at the end of it. If you're going to do the dark humour early on, there's going to be some bloody good payoff to all of this. You know, this is going to be worth it. And I didn't feel that it was worth it because I felt that the last half of the show just felt like some silly nonsense conflating ballet with football. But didn't the, do you that, think that... it
1: would have all been different if they'd reshot the opening gag?
0: Maybe. I think, in all honesty, I think you could completely lose the opening gag. You could just start with Bill coming in as the... Because you can tell straight away you know, from what he's saying, the way he looks and so on. He's a football hooligan. You've got all the scene setting with Fred Dynage and so on. Well, yeah, if, that if that it just things- started
1: as... Maybe even just like, right, London Weekend Television, I did, and then the big match opening titles, that would have thrown people a bit. But I don't think Football Crazy is a dead loss. I think there's good stuff in there Yeah, I don't
0: think it's a dead loss, but I don't think that ultimately there's really any payoff because that whole ballet sequence just seems to me to be... That's actually where I'm starting to sort of fall into your way of thinking earlier, that in a way that does feel like just a long sketch that's very, very loosely related to what's gone before. Okay, I'm going to come up with something really, really daft. Never on the cards, if for no other reason than expenditure. but. I'm going to put forward the idea that Robot, Bigfoot and Holidays belong on ITV in 1982 and Football Crazy, Change of Life and Animals belong on Channel 4.
1: Cool. Channel 4 goodies. There's an idea.
0: Then they've actually got the proper elbow room to do what they want to do. They've got the old BBC One Two split again. I don't think it ever would have been on the cards because, as we've established, The Goodies was a very, very expensive show to make. Bob Spears, when he was interviewed for the documentary in 2005, suggests that LWT didn't actually know how expensive The Goodies was when they brought them over. So certainly there was no possibility of ever returning up on Channel 4.
1: Oh, Channel is a publisher-broadcaster that could have found a, an independent company with deep pockets. Because if, you know, if they'd got to work with Steven Spielberg, it would have all been different.
0: But no, LWT could have done it for Channel 4, like they did Map and Lucia. But there comes a point where if you've got that level of expenditure, then you've got to be getting the most eyeballs and the most advertising pounds in the middle. And you just wouldn't get that with Channel 4 at this particular period of time.
1: I just think they need a cut in film sequences, fewer of those. Now, the goodies episodes I don't like, even from the BBC days, there's some I like and some I don't like. And the ones I don't like, All seem to have the same problem, which is they start with a nice build-up, and then in the second half, they just go... Then they all run around. (laughs) But there are some goodies where it's like, here's the situation, now we're going to make it a bit ridiculous, and in the really good ones, it's like, right, now we're going to expand it as far as it can go, take it beyond its logical conclusion, beyond its illogical conclusion, into nationwide craziness. And then there are some that's like, right, here's the idea. Let's expand it. And then let's all run around and go, (laughs) Bigfoot. Bigfoot has that wonderful, wonderful first half. Now, as a child, I was terrified of the wonderful undersea world of Arthur C. Clarke, whatever it was called. (laughs) (laughs) This glass skull gave me the fear. And then there came a certain point where suddenly I was no longer afraid. Of the Glass Skull of Arthur C. Clarke. And do you know why I stopped being afraid of the Glass <laughs> Skull of Arthur C. Clarke? Because I see it going, Noit, night, and that's it. I'm free. And it was at a birthday party. The birthday party, I think, I had to pause while we all watched the goodies.
0: The opening to Bigfoot is superb. Ah, if the whole series had been like that, then... The number of times I would have played this because I got this. I've got the disc right in front of me right now. I bought this in 2007 when it came out, and it would be completely, utterly worn out if it had all been like that. Because oh yeah, that opening is just.
1: But a bit like I said about football crazy, I know it's slightly different. They're not attacking a social ill with a certain fire in the bellies, but purposeful parody. It's not a case of what's funny. Arthur C. Clarke is Arthur C. Clarke. I keep seeing him on television. What's his deal? What can I find about him that's worth mocking? There's a good pantomime sequence, that whole, if you see Bigfoot, <laughs> the first time I, I watched that, again, the first time I watched that for the second time, for God knows how many years, I did myself a mischief <laughs> <laughs> with laughing. You know, not have an old offer on, are you? And yet that's a film sequence. After all we said about film sequences. Well, it is and it isn't, because it
0: cuts to the studio with Bill and Tim watching the show. So... It is, but it's not an isolated film sequence, if that makes sense.
1: And then there's this nice little throw whip, like the strawberry fair bit. It's the bit where they're going through their supplies and they go, rifle, trifle, four little... <laughs> Again, just, I don't know, it's just like taking a line and extending it in the wrong place. It's worth mentioning, being a triple act must be really difficult. God knows the Ritz brothers didn't manage it. That was unnecessarily cruel. I'll watch more Ritz brothers in future and maybe I'll come round to saying that they're seriously undervalued. Well, what about the Marx Brothers? Adam? Well, Forth The Marx time. Brothers, right, the Marx Brothers. Big fan of the Marx Brothers and I have to say that moment in Goodies and the Beanstalk where they dress up as the Marx Brothers and the audience cheer. Oh, does me old heart good. There are scenes where all three Marx Brothers are on screen but what frequently happens is you just break them down into double acts. There's always a thing Harpo can out with Chico because Chico's Sly, Chico can outwit Groucho, and very, very rarely do you get a Harpo Groucho combination. But it's just easier to keep turning him into Double X. And we even just on one occasion we get a Groucho Zeppo sequence where Zeppo almost shows what he could have done if the other three hadn't basically said, "Well, sorry, we need all the jokes this for this." And occasionally happens in the goodies is that Graham Tim Tim Bill Bill Graham. It's a way of actually keeping things fresh by effectively having them as being three double acts. And I'm introducing this because I thought I was then going to be able to talk about the different dynamics, and you know what, I can't. Right, hang on. So, right, when Tim and Bill get together, who's the butt of the joke? It switches, doesn't it? That's really interesting. It doesn't work like the Marx Brothers at all. Why did I bring that up?
0: There really is no straight man in The Goodies.
1: I think, do you know the moment when you reach adulthood? You're watching The Goodies and you think, I never realised how fantastic Graham was. He was always the grown-up one. He was always the one I connected to least. And it's like, man, when he gets the bit between his teeth, he really takes it somewhere.
0: Yeah, it's been a long time since I listened to I'm Sorry I Haven't a Clue on a regular basis. But as much as I like, for example, Barry Cryer, I find quite often it's one of Graham Garden's lines that really steals the show.
1: The interesting thing about Graham in this series is that he's lost his look. I think he'd started to lose it in the late BBC ones, hadn't he? But the other two, they still have their thing. But Graham, apart from the leather patches on his knees, he's gone normal. Doesn't look like he's part of a bizarre team anymore.
0: I'm just going to remind you of something else from Graham Garden from this particular period. When he's a security officer in Yes Minister, the guy who obviously really enjoys his job, (laughs) he's explaining to Jim Hacker all the different potential threats that he has as a minister. (laughs) And for some reason, I know that as soon as I think this, I I think, oh, hang on, no, that's not right. But you you know the um, firing squad in Blackadder Goes Forth with Stephen Frost and he's rapid, ready and fire. (gasps) Sometimes I figure that that line actually belongs to Graham Garden and Yes Minister. (laughs) Something he would just shout out to get higher. (laughs) and catch him unawares.
1: Oh, you know one thing we haven't mentioned, that set, the new set. The goodies have gone up in the world, literally. Yes. And they're in London. I really like that set. I really like the look.
0: It is nice. It is nice. It's nice and spacious. And their London skyline is better than Tony (laughs) Britton's. But I think you were alluding to the, the fact that Bigfoot follows a similar sort of path to a lot of goodies episodes across BBC and LWT. And that is that it does feel like a show of two halves. Even when it's on the BBC with its false advert halfway through. Because Bigfoot second half is sort of more the kind of material that then gets the goodies pitch and hold as a children's show, for example, and doesn't really feel like quite the same programme as it was when it started 20 minutes ago.
1: Yeah, the sex education one for the BBC, that's one that suffers from that problem. Let's take on Mary Whitehouse, Bill Goes Berserk, the end. Now, you may have noticed me prevaricating a bit here. There's seven episodes, isn't there? Including the special. All together, yep. I don't have seven episodes worth of notes. At least two episodes where I don't have anything to say. What comes after Bigfoot?
0: After Bigfoot is my favourite episode of the LWC series, which is Change of Life.
1: Well, that's very pointed, isn't it? That's Again, they've got something to talk about, because that's the year Bill turns 40. Or when they're shooting it is the year Bill turns 40. Tim is already 41 when that's being made. And Graham's the youngest, which kind of throws things a little bit. Because it's obviously written with the ageing gags are all the most pointed for Bill. And even through my grown-up eyes, I'm looking and thinking, why aren't they making any jokes about Graham? If I can just go a little bit off topic and talk about euthanasia? Because there's that bit in erthanasia right at the beginning when he falls off his skateboard and he goes, I am tearaway youth! <laughs> and you think ah uh, yeah right and then you see no spoilers you see what happens later in the episode when he does something silly i think oh my god yeah he was a young man change of life has had chunks lopped out of it hasn't it how do you mean there's just little jumps why are graham's glasses different why is he wearing a scarf
0: well because he's It's accentuating the fact that he has sort of come to terms with his age. I think there's something
1: that does that, though. I think there's something we're not seeing. There's conservation of detail. You can only take that so far. Because I'm fairly sure I've been told that there is a bit missing in the second half because you suddenly have Bill wearing a scarf and a smoking cap.
0: Now, hang on a second, because I'm going to consult the booklet, because the booklet actually makes reference to scenes that were cut uh, throughout the
1: shows. And after all the praise we've heaped on Graham, Brook Taylor, that guy can pull a face, can't he? <laughs> that cosmetic surgery bit. Again, it's a studio-based thing and there's nothing particularly elegant about it. It just requires natural funny. And I'm not leaving Bill out of that, but the best face Bill ever pulls is another one in Earth and Asia when he's, I think he's, maybe he's molested Tim's belly button? And he just pulls a face and
0: I'm not really seeing anything in the booklet that suggests that there's a lot of scenes cut. Unless it I'm feels missing something like there's something here. cut. That's okay, there, all I'm Okay, there's a saying, couple yeah. of sections. When they're out with the old ladies later on, there's a couple of scenes that have been cut from there.
1: I didn't really like the bits with the old ladies. That was another bit where the film stuff, even the film sequence where they're being put through their paces being the goodies again, didn't make me laugh. The feeling of working out some demons. Again, I've said there's something in this series that's them readjusting. And it almost feels like, what's restrictive about being the goodies? What are we sick of? They're almost doing their own two ninnies. <laughs> oh, yeah, we're going to run around. Oh, special effects. Oh, look at that. Jump cuts. Rubbish. We're rubbish, I tell you. But it's possible
0: that my appreciation for this particular episode
1: is through
0: a particularly odd prism. Because I really did like... That final sequence. And I know what you mean sometimes when it's the film sequence turns up and it's like, oh, here comes the film sequence. Now it's all going to go mad and it's going to be just till it gets to the end. But I really, really enjoyed that last little sequence where they're going for their M.O.T. With the exception of Dougal, you've got pretty much every single stereotypical goodies element in there. You've got the goose with the golden eggs. You've got Kitten Kong. You've got an Exploding Nicholas Parsons. You've got Ecky Fump. All these kind of things. I'm sure I've mentioned this on the podcast before, if not on this podcast, maybe on Jaffa Cakes. But part of the reason why I really enjoyed this episode is because this daft idea took hold as I was watching it. Nowadays whenever you see documentaries on T V and particularly with you know the fact that it's so competitive nowadays and all the different broadcasters are looking for different revenue streams and so on. So it's just the norm now that you can see documentaries on ITV, for example, have got footage from the BBC in them, and vice versa, and you've got all the cable channels and so on. But at the time that this was being made, by and large, you didn't really get that kind of thing going on. And if a BBC documentary needed stock footage, it used BBC footage, and ITV shows, on the other hand, tended to use their own footage. And for whatever reason, whilst this MOT sequence is going on, I thought. Hey, if you were in charge of Gloria Hunniford's Wheel of TV from 1985. And suddenly you were asked to put together a compendium of representative goodies shots. This show would be a bloody godsend. It's perfect. It's got everything in it. Look, you can fool people into thinking, oh, it. Look, there's the Kitten Kong episode. I remember that. That won the prize in Montreux. And hey, look, there's Eki Fump, the, the fellow who died when he was watching it because he was laughing so much and so on. And of course, I was thinking, oh, this is fantastic for that reason alone. I want ITV to make a goodies documentary in the future at some. Point which only has access to their own material because they can plumb so much material out of that episode.
1: Part of me was thinking, have they been encouraged to make this one by LWT so they have something for the opening titles? But now I'm thinking, maybe this is the first one they made? Consult your book again. Or maybe it's the first one finished because they used that clip to illustrate the Christmas special in the 1981 trailer. So is it a case of that's the first one edited? It isn't. Okay, so yeah, it is as cynical as that then. Whoever's making the Omni titles. It's right, well at least this has got all the stuff people remember the goodies for.
0: <laughs> Maybe that was so they could put a trailer together for international sales. So the goodies now available from London Weekend Enterprises. <laughs> but you could take the little sequence from Bigfoot, where Tim has disguised his foot as Dougal. Just take that and then pop it in <laughs> with the rest from here. And there you go, we got the complete BBC goodies. In the space of 30 seconds. But I also like the fact that this is self parodying There are a couple of instances. You mentioned Walker and Wise earlier One. There's a couple of instances where they start to do that kind of thing themselves. There's one particular little sequence that they did on BBC where Ernie comes out and says, oh, Eric's getting so predictable these days. And starts to wheel off all these little sort of ticks and what have you. For that reason, I really liked this one because it was a nice little sort of acknowledgement of exactly where the goodies were in popular culture at that point. So these are the things that they're sort of remembered for. And even though Kitten Kong was, by this point, 10 years old, that sequence with the cat in the post office tower and what have you has been repeated ad nauseum for the previous decade and so on. And this is my favourite episode of the whole whole series, Change your Life.
1: Or is it Holidays next?
0: Holidays, and Holidays is our budgetary.
1: The bottle episode, as TV tropes would call it.
0: Yes, so because they've spent a lot of money on previous scenes and elaborate stunts and so on, we've got an
1: all-studio-based
0: episode for number five.
1: Now, if enough tiresome chances talked about the goodies, and maybe we're fortunate that they don't, I think, you know what, those are actually the best ones would become a really dull cliché bit like how everybody started going actually revolve the best beatles album and i presume people have moved on from that i'm actually just building up a little line of defense because i like holidays best from this batch because the goodies didn't become famous for their great bottle episodes they became famous because of their ability to just burst out into the world the fact that they can destroy the country and i don't know if they ever really did well they destroyed the world once but The fact that they can destroy society as we know it and have it all back together again the following week, that's their great strength. But do you think it might have been a good idea to scale down a bit for LWT? Work on the smaller gags. Even like Football Crazy, which I said I I quite liked the ballet at the end, but I liked the ballet because some of the gags before it had already won me over. Maybe the second half could have just been more VT stuff.
0: It could have been a case where they were damned whatever they did, because even though. The arguments made that LWT found it too expensive and maybe didn't realise how expensive it was when they began. At the same time, LWT didn't want to reinvent the goodies wheel. They wanted what they'd been doing on BBC. And I don't know that if the goodies had made a whole series that was... say, they made an entire series that was VT-based with minimal special effects. I suspect that... The feedback from the public would have been, What's happened to the grand, expansive stuff that they were doing on BBC? We like, you know, Dougal the Big Dog and what have you, and Kitten and Kong.
1: Well, maybe they could have switched it about. So instead of usually big ones and occasional bottle ones, it could have been the big spectaculars with the occasional episodes. They could have, Look, well, we haven't done it for a couple of weeks, so poof, here's the explosive episode. A couple of those are series and couple of other that are slightly small you know so maybe two bottle episodes two massively explosive and a couple that are slightly in between where there are more guest stars but everything's still kind of studio based i don't know i I I keep finding this series they're at a crossroads and i want to see where they go like we said the overly tidy narrative well they were past their best so i think it's michael grade on at least one documentary you know well their time had come they were past their best No, you just didn't want to make any more goodies. They were too expensive. Maybe the ratings weren't there. There's a number of factors in play that I don't think the goodies were past their best. Even the bits I don't like. This is not a group of people who are not capable of doing what they're doing anymore. As much as there's bits of this series that I've been very, very critical of, maybe they just need a different script editor. Just somebody to... Take a look at what they're doing. Take a look at what everybody else is doing. Take a look at what looks like it is about to be done and finding a way for the goodies to plough through the 80s just the way they did in the 70s. I don't know. What, what do you think? I don't think this is a bunch of sad old men.
0: No, no, I don't think so. And sometimes, like you said about, there's the odd line here, the odd sequence there that sort of feels as if they are trying to show some teeth and what have you. I don't really want the goodies to do that. I think
1: the but I think it's natural to them. I mean, the bit where they do the punk stuff at the end of holidays. And it could be quite easy for... The, what are the kids like now? Punk rock? Oh, we can do punk rock. It almost feels like, ah, oh, punk, yes. That's when pop music caught up with the goodies. Because the goodies just mess around and smash things up sometimes. Okay, not all the time. But it didn't feel like a particularly unusual thing for the goodies to be doing. To be going <laughs> and smashing up their sets... That's fine. They might be doing it for slightly different reasons. There's a completely different discussion to be had about the episode Punky Business, but that's not for here.
0: I'm going to put forward a theory just now, and that is that given how visual humour is perhaps more to the fore in other countries than in the UK, that's part of the reason, of course, why Benny Hill was so successful internationally, Do you think perhaps if The Goodies wasn't a British show, do you think maybe if The Goodies was perhaps a German show, I think it might have been on for about 30 years. I think it would have been something that was just absolutely entrenched in popular culture. And in the year 2000, having changed over time and become older and so on, maybe doing a little bit less sort of physical stuff themselves, The Goodies would still be making their shows and producing these pastiches of the modern culture of the time.
1: Damn you, Moonkit! Damn you to hell. You're trying to make me say it, aren't you?
0: What? NUTS! <laughs> I said German, I didn't say Norwegian.
1: Yes, but it's a foreign thing. And as far as I know, yes, KLM kept going for quite a long time. And I'm now going to have to do more research into KLM, aren't I? And see what happened to them. But yes, I do get the feeling I've seen pictures of them together in a silly outfits long after the Age of Nuts. i was shaking my fist there at heaven. But I want more goodies! I want to see the 1980s goodies!
0: Didn't we say yesterday off-air that there should be more fist-shaking in situation comedy? That was specifically a reference to El Chavo del Show,
1: but we'll discuss that at a
0: different time. But,
1: hey, well, there you go, Chespirito. 1969 to sometime in the mid-90s when I think he finally... Retired, I think he maybe stopped doing El Chabo around about 92, but he'd first done the character about 1970. He ran for years and years and years to a British problem. Do we just not know how to look after our comedians? Actually, maybe the alternative mainstream divide, I- I've seen it argued before, babies got thrown out with the bathwater, and yeah, maybe people fell into that gap. I'm not sure if the goodies were necessarily an example. I think it was more... They felt they couldn't go back to the BBC. It was not that it was clear to them that the BBC wouldn't have them back. They felt that having made that leap, they couldn't leap back, even though Dick Emery did.
0: Well, the problem that they had initially at LWT, and we shouldn't get ahead of ourselves here because we've still got one episode to go, but the problem they had at LWT after...
1: (laughs) I didn't like Animals. Did not like Animals. I I found Animals to be the VT equivalent of Snow White 2.
0: I understand you know, the points it was making and so on. Well, look, yesterday we were like watching uh,
1: Blankety Blanks. I know that after this goes out we are going to get so many tweets from Bean is a Carrot because of all the things we've got wrong. Sheer factual stuff or theories <laughs> we've woven that do not stand.
0: And we, wel- we welcome them. We welcome all feedback. Tweet us at the sitcom club. Well, I need a little we bit of feedback,
1: feedback on Australian culture. I don't think Australia had the big alternative mainstream schism And I'm wondering how their comedy developed. Did they look after their comedians better? Was there ever a time in Australian history where ugly Dave Grey couldn't get the time of day? We've become very protective about him.
0: Yes, we have. And for good reason. We need to get his albums. Now, on the shelf in front of me is Eric Sykes, autobiography. And I think that we may have discussed this particular...
1: No, actually, I think it got cut out last time. (laughs) Oh, did it? Right. it went well, on so waffly and long.
0: There's a little passage in there where Eric Sykes recalls having a conversation with Bill Cotton at the BBC and Cotton has decided not to go ahead with Sykes' latest idea for a show. And supposedly Bill Cotton says to Eric Sykes, we're into alternative comedy now. Now, I have a problem with that story in as much as... First of all, it doesn't sound remotely like something that Bill Cotton would say. I can imagine Bill Cotton saying, for example, that they wanted to invest in new talent, they wanted to try new ideas, that they felt that perhaps this idea of exercise wasn't quite right for them at the time and, you know, there's there's new young people coming along and what have you. But just the very phrasing of that is just does not sound right at all. And let's face it, well, didn't BBC One... did we look at
1: the dates? It just really didn't make sense. And I mean, the less list- Sykes ended, I think, because Hattie Jakes died.
0: The series itself ended in 79, yes. And Sykes then began making shows for Thames TV in the same year, but he...
1: But he'd already made an hour-long special for Thames before then, in the 70s, with Hattie Jakes.
0: BBC One in the 1980s was not exactly a hotbed of alternative
1: comedy. Well, do you also think maybe it's management culture? I remember something... Orson Welles said in an interview about the film industry, and he said it's not a matter of the films that get made are the films that are most likely to make money. He said the films that get made are the ones that producers like to have their names attached to. And it's a case of the dinner parties of Kensington, because that's a part of London I've heard of, and I think rich people live there, but maybe it's not the right one, but who cares, is where all the producers, the television producers, go and talk to their friends with red glasses god did you see mind your language last night oh they're still making that and therefore the managers who seem to have a bit more power in the 80s i mean the, the variety bloodbath at the bbc is circa 78 isn't it
0: well that's year, of course that the minstrel show is cancelled
1: i think there is a policy decision about Fewer variety shows, but we've still got little and large continuing through the 80s. We've still got Russ Abbott and things like that. But it just seems to be that as managers become more powerful in the 80s because of the prevailing political climate... politicise everything, don't I? <laughs> I used to be so <laughs> apolitical. I started watching these sitcoms. It's all your fault.
0: I was going to suggest you'd start watching MSNBC. But no. Okay, the reason I was citing... But anyway, as, Sykes, as, so.
1: as the managers get more powerful they're the ones taking the decisions and the decisions they're taking are because of the things their friends like and the things they want to be seen to be attached to. And it's not so much a case of give the people what they want or make the good popular and the popular good. It's Tarquin and Jocasta laughed at me because my company made something that Pavo's like. (sighs) I really am a very nice person. I'm calm, (laughs) quite placid most of the time. A smile and a song. As I travel along, but for some reason, put a microphone in front of me and make me watch something like this. This is all Mooncat's fault. I only do this to be nice. I I would rather be talking about the corridor people, <laughs> the changes, the changes. Oh, what a show! The changes. I love it. I love it. It's not a sitcom though, is it? So no, everybody likes the Sitcom Club.
0: Now, Peter Finch, calm down. We'll get all those dealt with on Jaffa Cakes and Jukos. in due course. A robot could do this is-
1: better. Let's get a robot.
0: The reason I cited Eric Sykes was...
1: Because... I am SitCultron. Please program your sitcom opinions into me.
0: Do you take double A's or triple A? I'm A's? done
1: now. Life's too short. <laughs> Mooncat will take you to the end of the podcast. And I will see you next time. But right now for me. It's goodbye because it's also very hot here in California and I need to turn on my fan and you don't want to hear that whirring in the background. so You're not going anywhere. No, no Mooncat, you can take it up to the... We've got time now. I think you can do it. So goodbye, everybody, and I leave you in the capable hands of Mooncat.
0: The reason I was citing Eric Sykes there a moment ago is that a couple of years ago, we both saw the untransmitted show that Sykes and Spike Milligan made in 1985, I think it was called The Jewel on the Crown. And that was long. For example, this is in 1985 and Spike Milligan is blacked up throughout. And as you're looking at this, you're just sort of thinking, there isn't the hope in hell that this was ever going to get on BBC One in 1985. I'm astonished that they actually made the damn pilot in the first place. People might be thinking, oh, you know, the goodies, they, they blacked up for... South Africa in the mid-1970s. I mean the episode South Africa. I don't mean they went to South Africa. No, no. there was an episode called South Africa that they did at the BBC with Philip Maddock. And that's sometimes cited as, oh, you know, look at this, you know, sledgehammer, a nut, and what have you. The point is that I don't think there's any prospect that they were going to try and do that in, say, 1985. I don't think that the goodies deserved to be written off in the same way as a lot of people who had been at the forefront of popular culture in the 1970s. I really do think that the goodies still had a lot to contribute, and I can visualise this, I can see the goodies being on television for decades. And I think that if this had been outside the UK, I suspect that would probably be the case. So we didn't particularly discuss animals, but animals is the last in the LWT series. It has similarities with the episode of the same name, at the BBC a couple of years earlier. And although it's making its point in its own way, and there's a lot of a lot of good points that are made in the episode, particularly about Dog is for Life, not just for Christmas and so on. It, it sort of feels like a little bit of a, a chore. In, in some ways, I would rather The Change of Life have been the last episode, because in a way that sort of feels a bit like a goodies finale. I think that would have been a good one to go out on. But nonetheless... That was the conclusion of The Goodies and the show was repeated in 1984. The Goodies remained under contract with LWT throughout their three years but they couldn't work as The Goodie anywhere else. So effectively they were paid not to make The Goodies for the rest of their time there. And there we have it. Now Ocho has gone. He has left the building and no one knows to where he has gone. So here I am sat here in what can only be described as a darkened room, although there was an ankle Pies lamp on. And I will provide you with details of the further reading slash listening slash viewing. Like I say, the goodies LWT is available from the network. It's got that fabulous little booklet from Andrew Pixley inside it. And there are also some cracking books out there on the subject of the goodies. Go looking for them on Amazon. I think one of them is written by Robert Ross, for example. Apologies if I'm forgetting anybody else. I know there was more than one book about the goodies out there. And there's plenty to be said about them, plenty to be read about them. So go looking. The Return of the Goodies, a 2005 documentary, which was recorded at LWT, or so it's now known, the London Studios. That's available on YouTube, and I think about nine parts or so. So next week on the sitcom club, F4 Show Returns, we will be discussing The Likely Lads. we will be going all the way back to the 1960s to discuss the original Likely Lads series by Clement Le and we'll be. Taking a look at the series, we'll be taking a listen to the radio episodes as well, so we're going to give it a sort of all-round sort of assessment of it. There are occasions when a little bit of retcon going on in there from time to time. That's going to be next week on the Sitcom Club. If you've got anything for us at all, you can tweet us at the Sitcom Club. You can email us at feedback at sitcomclub.com. We're also on Facebook as well, and there are over eighty editions of the podcast available in the archives, and you'll find all of them at sitcomclub.com. So. I'm going to go looking for Ocho now, and that may take a while. If I find him, then he and I will be back next week on The Sitcom Club.